Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. It's January the 10th, 2022, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, today we're continuing our study on the book of Romans, and specifically we are looking at Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Well, the most frequent theme of Romans chapters 12 through 14 is neighbor love, and we see that this theme appears again in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, interchange with the idea of staying alert and making the most of your life for the coming kingdom. Romans 13 begins with submission to authorities, and specifically, that section ends in verse 7 with the idea of what we owe to authorities, to leaders, and to officials. Romans 13, 7 reminds us to pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And Paul picks up the theme of love as he finishes up with chapter 13, but he also picks up with this whole theme of owing. And in verse eight, he says, owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, before we think that Paul has gone off in a contradiction when he says, owe taxes, owe revenue, owe respect, and owe honor, and then right back in the next verses, owe no one anything, we have to see that there's two ideas at play here. In, in verse seven, Paul is saying, hey, if you owe it, owe it to them and pay it in full. In other words, don't be indebted long-term to someone. Now, Paul's not getting into an argument over whether you should finance a house or finance a car or, or have any type of operational debt. But what Paul is saying is don't cheat, don't pull back, but so that you have this long-term encumbrance over your head. However, the contrast that we're going to see in Romans 13, 8 through 14 is that he is saying, love one another, and you always owe love. We're always owed. We always owe another to love another. We always owe it to the Lord to love him and to love others. So with that thought, let's pick up with Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, verse 11, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. Paul starts off by saying that the only thing we owe is love. Pay what is owed. Fulfill your obligations and agreements. However, always be indebted to love. There is one debt that can never be settled, the debt to love others. We are obligated to love. That's what Paul is saying. 
We're obligated to love God and to love others. And this debt of love is permanent. We see from Paul here that love is not sentimentalism, right? This isn't just a sentimental thought. It's not just a sentimental feeling, but it's actually attached back to the law of God. It's found in God's law. Love and law are not enemies, but they are united by their relationship to Jesus. I love the way that Sinclair Ferguson says it. He says, without Christ, the law is powerless. And without the law, love is directionless. So without Christ, the law is powerless. Without the love of Christ, without the the joy, the love that comes, that that overflows to us from Christ, the law is absolutely powerless. What does the law mean? If, If Christ does not come to fulfill the law, if we are not told to love, then what good is the law? But at the same time, without the law, love is just directionless. We have no basis for love. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson said it. And we see from Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, 34 through 40, that Jesus says that the law is fulfilled through love and love depends on the law. So it says, verse 34, that the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. So they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So in other words, this Pharisee, this lawyer had no intention of really getting an answer. He was trying to catch Jesus. He was trying to to test him. He was trying to put him on trial. Verse 36, teacher, this is what he says, which is the great commandment in the law? In other words, this this Pharisee, this Sadducee, this lawyer was trying to trick Jesus like on a cross-examination. Well, you said all the law is good. You you certainly wouldn't wouldn't do away with the Ten Commandments and the law. And he says, which is the commandment of the law is the greatest? In verse 37, it says this again. It says that Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But, verse 39, the second is like it. You shall love the neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We see that when we love God fully, this flows into loving others completely. We can't love others well until we love God supremely. And as we'll see here in a minute, even as Paul moves into verse 9, that those 10 commandments actually direct how we love and we love directed by the law. But I love first how John Piper says this balance between loving God, loving self and loving others. He says this, he says, love God with all your heart means finding God a satisfaction so profound that it fills up all your heart. Love God with all your soul means finding God a meaning so rich and so deep that it fills up all your aching corners of your soul. Love God with all your mind means finding God the riches of knowledge and insight and wisdom that guide and satisfy all that the human mind was meant to be. In other words, take all of your self-love, all of your longing for joy and hope and love and security and fulfillment and significance, take all of that and focus it on God until he satisfies your heart and soul and mind. So what then is Jesus commanding in the second commandment? That we love our neighbor as ourselves. He is commanding that our self-love, which has now discovered its fulfillment in God love, be the measure and the content of our neighbor love. Or to put it another way, he is commanding that our inborn self-seeking, which has now been transposed into God-seeking, overflow and extend itself to our neighbor. 
And as Paul says in verse 8 of Romans chapter 13, which he borrowed from Jesus, this love for neighbor fulfills the law. So then Paul lists these four of the horizontal Ten Commandments as proof that the law tells us how to love and defines love. So in verse 9, he, he lists out these commandments. And we see these four, all horizontal, all talking about our horizontal relationships and their proof that the law does tell us to love and that it defines love. So first one we see is adultery. Well, this is not love because it violates God's commandment and its expression of rebellion, lust, and selfishness. This is not love. The man who commits adultery defiles the covenant relationship given even as a metaphor for God's love for his church out of a sinful desire, which leads to the torment of his wife, his children, his witness, and the world. Those who commit adultery love self, but do not love others. Not even the one with whom they commit the act do they love, because this is not love, but infatuation. True love is built on a covenant commitment. Adultery shows us what love is, but murder is the second one that, that Paul lists. And obviously, you're not loving another to murder them, either in your heart or by your actions. Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mountain, Matthew 5, 21 through 22, you've heard that it said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Beloved, when we murder someone in our heart, it is unloving to God who created that person in his image and obviously unloving to that person. But then third, we see stealing. You cannot love someone whom you steal from. If you are so consumed by self and your need that you cause harm or injury to another, this is unloving. Recently, my sweet wife, Ashley, was in Texas and uh, she had her backpack and suitcase stolen from her sister's vehicle while they were eating lunch. And even though it was a simple act, she felt violated, afraid, and overwhelmed. And it was at the beginning of her trip, so she had to go purchase new clothes just to, to, to be able to finish the trip. But stealing is not just a physical act. It's an emotional act as well. We can become glory hogs, wanting praise and recognition for ourselves above that of others. And in contrast to these three, love is about faithfulness, not adultery, about wanting to see others flourish, not murdering them, and about blessing others, not stealing from them. But then the fourth example, Paul moves from actions really to what is desire when he talks about covetousness. And so coveting is an expression of, is not an expression of love for our neighbor. Coveting is wanting something that God has not chosen to give us. It is the lack of being content in the Lord's blessings and wanting what someone else has. When we want what someone else has to the point that we become bitter and resentful, this is not love. And we see from these examples that God's commands are not burdensome, but simply reveal the true nature of love, ultimately because they show us God's character. Love is more than not violating God's commandment but it's aggressively looking for ways to love God and allow that love to flow to the direct benefit of our neighbor. Verse 10 reveals to us the gospel. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Verse 10, it says, it says this, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
What we see here is we all know that we cannot perfectly fulfill the law, but there is one who perfectly fulfilled the law. He was the only perfect one. And instead of counting equality with God as something to be grasped, love came down in order to pay the penalty we deserve and to fulfill the law in our place. We cannot fulfill the law and we cannot love perfectly. Oh, but the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ came. And, and, it, and, it, and this all in Romans chapter 13, verse 10, arkens us back to Romans chapter 8, especially verses 3 through 4. It says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We have now been enabled by the spirit to love. And so we love God and we love others by caring for the orphan the vulnerable woman, the vulnerable child, the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. The ministry of Lifeline is encapsulated in loving God and loving others. However, Paul isn't through. He starts off verse 11 with the phrase, besides this. In other words, he heightens what he has said about love and now says, add this to love. And what we see in the rest of this passage is that we must remain awake and steadfast. We cannot fall back on cheap grace, but strive onward to make the love of God known to others and to the nations. In other words, we were saved to love God, saved to love others, but we were also saved to make this love known to those who are perishing without the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul gives four exhortations to the church of Rome and to us as well in verses 11 through 14 for exhortations in order to live life in the light. And the first of these exhortations is wake up. Verse 11 says, besides this, know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul does not want us to be spiritually asleep, but instead wide awake, ready for action, awake to what matters because the end is near. What does Paul mean when he says our salvation is nearer than when we first believed? He is speaking of the working of our salvation. You see, there are three phases of our salvation. We are saved once and for all. Ephesians 2.8, for by the grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. But we are also being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.8, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our salvation is occurring moment by moment. There's an act of grace where we are saved and then we are consistently being saved so that what we will be saved. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In other words, Paul is speaking of the coming reality of God's judgment, which will be for all. But for those who believe in Jesus, we will stand innocent as he stands in our place. But we must wake up and preach the glorious gospel to those who are perishing. Paul tells the church at Thessalonica something very similar in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have, need to have, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman 
and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Oh, beloved, wake up, oh sleeper. For we are not promised tomorrow and neither are those who are perishing without Christ. We must wake up out of love and live in the light. However, the second exhortation to live life in the light is to discard the works of darkness. Romans chapter 13, 12 through 13. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness or sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. We have been saved from sin, and we do not need to relapse into the same behavior. Paul here urges us and the church at Rome against the sins that are of the outside world. Those those sins that we usually uh, talk about as unspeakable sins, those that are committed by the world, wild lewdness and sexual sin. Paul says, do not associate with these types of sins. Discard the works of darkness, but then Paul also rebukes against those sins that are more permissible or acceptable to the church, such as quarreling and jealousy. So Paul says, hey, don't associate with the sin of the world, but don't also associate with those sins that you, in your own justification, try to act as are less costly or less deadly as quarreling and jealousy. This is what Paul says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 24. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Oh, beloved, wake up, throw off the deeds of darkness. And this leads to the third exhortation to live life in the light, and that is to put on Christ. Romans chapter 13, the first part of verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We discard the works of darkness in exchange for the armor of light of the Lord. The verb we see here in verse 14 is also one that is present, perfect, or continual. It means continue to put on Christ. Don't stop. This is not a one-time deal. This is daily put on Christ. Throw off darkness, discard the works of darkness, and continually put on Christ. Don't stop. Just like you put on clothes in the morning, daily put on Christ. Be intentional. We must be seeking him by the reading of God's word. We must be spending time with the Lord in prayer, and we must be actively seeking his face, for he is the one who gives us our daily marching orders and enables us to live for him. Living in the light is not just about being a good person, but it's primarily about living as a Christ-centered person 
through our, though our identity in Christ, through that identity and through communion with him, we pursue lives of holiness. This is what Paul says to the church in Ephesus in a familiar passage, Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse 10 through 13. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And so this leads us to the fourth and final exhortation. We wake up, we throw off the deeds of darkness, we put on Christ, and then we stand firm in the power of Christ. Verse 14, continually put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Stand firm in the power of Christ. Make no provision for the flesh means we say no to any thought which may lead us to sin. We avoid even the desire for sin. Brothers and sisters, beloved, we shouldn't make plans to sin. We shouldn't daydream about sin. We should never seek comfort in sin. We must not flirt with sin. And we do not have to do this on our own power, but we do this in the power which is ours through the life of Christ. We direct our minds to the beauty of Christ as found in the word of God. We dream about the glory of the Lord, which is to come. We focus on the lover of our souls, realizing how infinitely better and greater Jesus is than our sin. And so we live with the day in view when Jesus will come and eradicate sin, sickness, hurt, pain, and the systems which produce vulnerable women, children, and families. We live for the day when Jesus will return. And until then, we keep that day firmly in view in order that the power of Christ may rest on us, helping us fight sin, but also enabling us to make his beautiful gospel known. So in closing, beloved, we love God, which overflows to a love for others, which is ultimately manifested in a global mission so that all tribes, tongues, and nations come to saving faith in Christ Jesus. Well, thank you for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. This week, we are praying for Lifeline's leadership, specifically for our leaders at Lifeline. And uh, we pray for the decision-making and the stewardship and wisdom for our leaders so that they may lead this ministry with integrity and that they may lead this ministry so that we'll hold firm to the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for Lifeline, this ministry. I pray specifically for wisdom and discernment for the leaders here at Lifeline. I pray that you would give wisdom when the way forward is confusing or challenging. I pray that you would help our leaders to seek after you with all their heart, with all their mind and all their soul and their personal time in the Lord. Lord, James says that you give wisdom liberally and I pray that you would give that wisdom to our leaders. I pray for the Lord's protection over the families that are represented at Lifeline. I pray that you would help all that work at Lifeline to strengthen and support their families as they strengthen and support other families. I pray for continued unity for our leaders, specifically as the ministry is growing and there is future growth on the forefront. I pray that, uh, that, that our leaders would pause 
to seek the Lord's direction and would not make knee-jerk decisions or, or make quick decisions, but would always pause to seek the Lord's direction. Prayer leaders would have a conviction to never compromise the word of God, and they would hold tight to the word of God. I pray for the stewardship of the ministry, that our leaders would be wise and faithful stewards over the resources of the ministry and would use those resources to guide the ministry, but also to to lead well. I pray for relationships amidst the loneliness that leadership sometimes brings. I pray that you would give our leaders community and, 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 and that they would seek after you. And Lord, that they would not be lonely, but that they would follow you. I pray that they would love and demonstrate Christ well to our team. I pray they would navigate the tension of patience and urgency in a way that reflects God's character. I pray that they would have foresight from the Lord to make best decisions when decisions do have to be made quick. Lord, I just ask that you would surround our team, that you would show them love, that you would be with our executive team, our senior leadership team, that you would be with all of our managers. Lord God, that you'd be with all every team member here at Lifeline, that we would exemplify the Lord, especially as we start this new year of 2022. Father, to yours be the glory of 2022. May we serve you well, may we honor you well, and may this ministry always be a delight to you. It's in your name that we pray, the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.